Good morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Esther chapter 8. We've come to an incredibly helpful and telling chapter in the book of Esther. And as you see on the screen, the title for the message this morning is a little longer than usual. It's Sad Things Coming Untrue, Salvation for the People of God. We see this in Esther chapter 8. Before we get to Esther 8, though, I want to remind you of a, a really important text in Luke. Luke chapter 24, you don't have to turn there, but the story goes that after Jesus rose from the dead, he is on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who are lamenting the fact that Jesus has just been crucified. And Jesus is asking them questions and they're trying to answer him. And as they're walking together, it says in verse 27 of Luke 24, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. As Christians, we look at the Bible differently than anybody else in the world because we look at the Bible with Christ as the key to understanding all of it. From Genesis to Revelation, he is the key. And I, and I hope to show you that today in Esther 8, that it has a clear depiction for us of the work of Christ. And that's why the second part of that title is what it is, salvation for the people of God. The first part is from The Return of the King, which is the third book, the last book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, you don't have to know much about Lord of the Rings or J.R.R. Tolkien, and I'm sure some of you have read those books more than, than most. So, long story short, in this giant narrative of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's a really, really bad guy, and there's some good guys, and the good guys are trying to beat the bad guy, all right? And they go on a journey to go beat the bad guy. And at the very end of all things, when the bad guy is finally defeated, evil is finally defeated, when it seems as though all is lost, but actually things turn out to be for the best, we get an interchange, this conversation between two of our heroes, Gandalf the wizard and Samwise Gamgee, who is undoubtedly the MVP of the story. Right? And Sam says to Gandalf, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It's that kind of relief. It's that kind of rest that we're going to see in a shadowed form in Esther chapter 8. A similar shift has taken place from the Lord of the Rings trilogy in Esther chapter 8. Look at verse 1 of Esther 8. It says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he, had given, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So as we start Esther chapter 8, we see that Esther is all right, that Mordecai is all right, that the evil one has been defeated. Haman has been executed by the king. Mordecai is now exalted above all others in the empire except for the king. And he's given the king's ring. 
It seems like everything sad that was hanging over the people of God, like a great shadow, is beginning to come untrue. Salvation, not destruction, not genocide, is their destiny. And as we'll see this morning, it's our destiny too, if we're found in Christ. So let's pray. Father, you are unbelievably majestic and wonderful and holy and powerful and good and wise. God, you are present with us even now. And so, Lord, I pray as we dive into your word together as the people of God, as we read this story about how you delivered your chosen people, Israel, from certain destruction, would we see this story through the lens of Christ and be reminded of the untold treasures of the gospel. Help us, God, to center our lives on that truth that you came to save sinners. That Jesus, you bled and died. You bore the wrath of God for my sin. And you gave me your righteousness instead. You saved us, brought us out of darkness into your kingdom, gave us new hearts, adopted us into your family, put your spirit within us, sealed us as a guarantee of your inheritance that we now get to share in because of your work. So Lord, help us to keep the gospel the main thing, to see it in its beauty, even in shadowed form here in Esther 8 as we rejoice that everything sad in our lives will one day be untrue. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to trace this unfolding salvation for God's people in three parts. So if you're taking notes this morning, we see in this story, Esther chapter 8, salvation secured. That the first thing that's going to happen is Esther will stand before the king and secure salvation for the people. Look at verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the plan, the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. So so pause. Throughout the story of Esther, we have said, I have said, hopefully you've heard me say, uh, that, that Mordecai and Esther are not perfect heroes. Right? Sometimes they do shady things. Sometimes they make mountains out of molehills. And the reality is we're seeing these two characters who are living in a broken world and living within those gray areas that that world creates. This world empire is their world. But for this chapter, in Esther chapter 8, I think it's plain. It's clear when we see that in different ways they both point us to Christ. So Esther, right here, as she falls before the king and pleads for Haman's work to be undone, she is doing the work of both mediator and intercessor before the king. So she identifies with her people, as we'll see in just a moment, and she pleads for their deliverance. So let's keep reading verse 4. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleased the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, 
the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? So Esther receives encouragement from the king when he extends the golden scepter towards her. Now, if you remember back in the story, that was a sign that she was not going to die, right? When she goes before the king illegally, he handed down here, he held out the golden scepter as a way to show mercy. But here, I think, this way of of encouragement from the king by holding out this golden scepter was a way to remind Queen Esther that he is on her side. In this moment, in this instance, he is on her side. The threat of death was probably not upon her. And so Esther then rises and makes her request in a way that's, again, fitting to the empire. The earlier law that Haman wrote could not be removed. It couldn't be changed. But a new law could be given that supersedes the old one. So she asks the king, let a letter be written to revoke, or I like how the NIV translate that word, translates this word, overrule the former letter. Haman's previous edict was going to be overruled by a new law, a new word. What was going to cause the death of God's people is going to be overruled by a new law that will bring them life. Esther then identifies once again with the people of Israel. She says, how can I bear to see calamity? How can I bear to see destruction that comes upon my people, my kindred? So Esther here is standing in the gap between the king and those who are currently doomed to destruction. And I don't think it's a far stretch to say that you and I are called to do the same. We have access to a king. We have access to to go before a king who right now has his wrath pointed at those who are not in Christ. Those who have uh, sinned against him, have broken his law, have transgressed his commandments. People all around us are under an order of destruction from the King of Kings. And sinners, apart from Christ, will suffer calamity. So do we join Esther in her cries? Or will we join Esther? Are there people in our lives that we know, that we know right now, are apart from Christ? And are those the kinds of people that we're praying to the Lord that He might save? Because we too were sinners. And we can identify with anyone who is still lost because we were once lost ourselves. Esther knows she is only safe because she has pleaded before the king. And so now she takes her access and pleads before the king for others. Let's notice how the king responds. Look at verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, And to Mordecai the Jew, behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. 
So right here, the king reminds Esther, after she weeps and falls to her knees and pleads before the king, the king reminds her what has just happened. Remember what just happened, Queen Esther. I'm on your side. I believed you. I I delivered Haman over to be killed. I gave his whole household to you and now to Mordecai. I've, I've exalted Mordecai into a place of authority. So now, the king says, you write your own decree and write it in my name. Write it on behalf of the Jews. Do what you want and use my authority and my power to get it done. So from the throne of the empire, salvation for the people of God has been secured. We know that this worldly throne sits under another throne. And all throughout this book, we've seen God's providential hand orchestrating all things to bring about the glory that's due his name, which we'll see in wonderful ways later in this chapter, but also the good of his people, his glory and our good. But this good news for the Jews, this this good news for the people of God, what we might call gospel, has to be shared. It has to reach the other parts of the world in time to save them. No one knows quite yet that the king is actually on the side of God's people. As Carl Henry, a massively important theologian in the 20th century said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. So that brings us to our second point. If salvation has been secured from the throne, number two, salvation proclaimed. Salvation proclaimed. This message has to be shared. Look at verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king, of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. So Mordecai gets to work. He gets the okay from the king and he starts writing the decree. He he gathers all the scribes in the citadel of Susa to gather together to write these decrees out and begins to undo what Haman tried to do in Esther chapter 3. The language between Esther 3 and Esther 8 right here is parallel, except this time the Jews are singled out as the recipients of the decree in their language. Right? It says that, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. This is all taking place about two months or so, a little bit over two months, after the original decree. So so think, for 60 days, the people of Israel, all throughout the Persian Empire, have been lamenting. For two months, they have been awaiting their destruction looking off into the future and thinking, the only thing that is left for me here is death for two months. And so this message written by Mordecai goes out to undo that damage, to undo that fate. And it was sealed with the king's ring. It was 
proven to be authentic by that seal. So if you just remember from Esther chapter 3, Haman seals those decrees with the king's ring. And what that means is when somebody, a governor or a satrap, somebody in a different province receives that message and they see that seal, they know it to be authentic. They know it to be real. They know it to be trustworthy because it's been sealed by the king. So these decrees sealed by the king's ring, were sent through couriers, these messengers of the king, on their fastest horses. So something different from Esther 3 to Esther 8 is that the the horses that were used here were the fastest horses, swift horses, bred from the royal stud. These are the best of the best, the fastest of the fastest. This message, unlike Haman's original decree, had some explicit urgency behind it because it has to get there in time. So what did the message say? Look at verse 11. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, Throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy that was written of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So what did the message say? As a synopsis or a summary, it says this. The Jews have been handed over to destruction in a previous letter, but now the king gives the Jews permission to defend themselves. They can fight back. They can defend their lives, they can defend their families, they can defend their homes. And if they are attacked by any armed force, they can destroy, kill, and annihilate them. Devote them to complete destruction. In other words, they can send them to judgment. It is not a call for the people of God to unprovokedly slaughter their enemies. This is really important. The the king is not giving the people of God license to go and destroy, but they are receiving license to conquer their enemies if attacked. This message was to be publicized and proclaimed for the entire empire to see. The king is on the side of the people of God. And the couriers, as verse 14 tells us, mounted on their swift horses and rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. Again, the author is trying to stress to you and me, this message needs to go out now. There are a few things in this passage that should look familiar to you and me if we read it through the lens of Christ. So just think with me, imagine with me the the parameters and the details of this passage. There was a faithful Jew who is exalted as prince of the world. And he is given all authority by the king. And this exalted prince tells 
messengers, a word of good news and salvation for the people of God. And those messengers are then tasked to urgently spread that message as far as possible. And when the world sees that message and the seal of the king, they recognize its authenticity and believe it to be true. That it isn't just some fake news, but it's actually real royal decree. One day, the people of God will be attacked, but they will then stand against their enemies and have victory over them once and for all. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like the gospel, and it sounds like the age that we are in right now. This is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working inseparably to bring about the salvation of a people who are helpless and hopeless in a broken world. And the way that the message will come to those who need it, the way that we receive that message is through messengers sent by the prince and by recognizing the seal. Students, we have a much better message than Mordecai's couriers. This passage points us to our current day and time, our current predicament, and our current task to go and make disciples. You and I have been sent by the Prince of Peace who received authority from the Lord and King of the universe. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And our message, this gospel that we have to share is sealed and authenticated by the Spirit of God who works to open the eyes of the blind and bring salvation to those who are doomed apart from it. And as we'll see in just a moment, outsiders will even recognize this message and be brought in to salvation as well. So not only is salvation secured through the mediator, not only is it proclaimed through the messengers sent by the prince, but thirdly and finally, if you're taking notes, salvation is extended. Salvation is extended. Look at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the, royal, of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. When Mordecai leaves the king's presence, the author of Esther forces us to consider his splendor, to notice his majesty, royal robes, a great golden crown, a robe of fine linen and purple. This man, this Mordecai has been exalted. And the response of the city of Susa is rejoicing and praise. Mordecai, as we will see next week in, in more clarity, is seen here as a deliverer for the people of God. 
He is the one, Esther 10 says, who seeks the welfare of the people and speaks peace to them. Students, our Savior does that and so much more for us. Jesus, the greater Mordecai, has secured our redemption and our peace. You think earlier in the story, the Jews responded to the edict from the king with lamenting, with weeping, with sackcloth and ashes. And now they respond to this new word, this new message with light and gladness and joy and honor. Their sad state was becoming untrue. Out from Susa, the message of deliverance spreads. And as the edict reached a place within the empire, whenever the the message was received, the people of God responded with gladness and joy. They did not, like in Esther 4, fast and lament. Now they held feasts and took holidays. This is what the message of salvation brings to those who are doomed to destruction. Students, only in the context of really clearly understood bad news is the good news truly celebrated. If if you and I think, oh, yeah, I mean, we're a part of a church because Jesus is glorious and he saved us from our sins, and that's awesome, but... You know, what else you got? Like, we got, like, trips. We got, like, fun events. Like, we got things we need to do. Like, this news, this this gospel is not something we get over. And if you are over it, then perhaps it's because you don't recognize the weight of your depravity. You don't recognize how bad the news really was for you. You don't recognize that your sin brought you the wage of death before God. And not just physical death, not just a a snuffing out of your life in this world, but the wrath of a holy God pointed at you. But in Christ, these things are removed. This doom is done away with. And instead you receive favor and righteousness and blessing and love and adoption into the family of God. We don't get over this. It's not something that we move on to later. The gospel, if we're running a race, the the gospel is not the gunshot that we hear at the very beginning and then run in our lives as though we're just going to do things our own way. That's what Paul was getting at in Galatians 3. He said, oh foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Let me just ask you this. Are you continuing in the flesh what was begun in the Spirit? The gospel isn't the gunshot. The gospel is the track. You never leave it. You ne- even when you finish the race, you're still on it. And in the same way, when this message of good news comes to those who know that they are doomed to destruction, they know that death is their fate, they know that this is what is going to happen. And not only that, for us as sinners, we deserve it. When we hear the good news of the gospel, We cannot stay the same. For two months, the Jews knew exactly what their fate was supposed to be. But now, 
Now they're hearing a new message, a new law, a new command from God that the king is not against them, but for them. Their joy was deep. But notice the last phrase of this passage. Look again at verse 17, halfway through. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. These pagan Gentiles, these idol worshipers, these citizens of the world empire who have orchestrated their lives around Ahasuerus' throne and ultimately around the throne that they sit on in their own hearts. These citizens of the kingdom of this world witnessed God deliver his people and it filled them with fear. You think of Isaiah 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and smoke filled the room and the seraphim with six wings declaring holy, holy, holy. And here's Isaiah, a prophet, saying, oh no, I'm undone. I will literally come apart at what I am seeing because I am a man of unclean lips. When Isaiah saw God in his holiness, it filled him with fear. When he saw God for who he is, it caused him to tremble. And in the same way, when the Gentiles of the Persian Empire witnessed the deliverance of God's people by His sovereign and providential hand, it filled some of them with fear. And they declared themselves Jews because that fear led them to follow the God who is able to deliver His people. A few generations before, Daniel was delivered from the lion's den after a ridiculous decree condemned him. And after his deliverance, according to Daniel 6, this is what it says, that then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. As the message of God's salvation goes to the ends of the earth, people that you and I would not expect will come to believe it. Student, if you are a Christian, if you confess that Jesus is both Savior and Lord, if you've turned from your sin and placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus, you have been given an invaluable gift. You've been given the gift of salvation, but that gift comes with a task. You are now equipped to proclaim the gospel that you believe 
If you know enough about the gospel to believe it, then you know enough about the gospel to share it. And in God's wonderful providence, those who are dead in sin around you will hear that message and receive new life. They'll receive a new heart. They'll receive the same gift of salvation that you joyfully celebrate. So like the people of God in this chapter, the day of our final victory over our ultimate enemies has not yet come. We're caught between the destruction of our enemy and the proclamation of a new word, looking to the future, to the day when we will stand victorious with our conquering king. We're caught in the middle. We're we're already in Christ, but not yet in its fullness has he come. But the day of the Lord is coming. Like those who received and believed the good news of their salvation, let us be a people of rejoicing, of gladness, who tell others how they might join us. Let's be the ones who delightfully share with ourselves and with one another and with the world around us how the sadness of this world will come untrue. Let's pray. Father, you have given us rich treasures. As we study your word and seek to comprehend it, we're filled once again with joy and gratitude and gladness, and we're made light because the weight of our sin has been removed. The sentence of eternal death has been wiped away. And now we are justified in your eyes. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we are awaiting your return. So Lord, as we live in light of this new law, this new covenant, help us to be messengers. Fill us with urgency. Remind us that the gospel is not something that we get over, but something that we go more deeply into to celebrate, to enjoy, to share. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.